When I was a really young age, I would go into homes or restaurants or hotels or whatever, and I would notice the small, small details. And I love noticing how miters lined up and what trim they used. And I just like details. Chris never intended to be an architect. He went into environmental design, knowing he would take over his family's millworking business after getting his degree. He utilized the program for its flexibility, knowing it could foster his non-architectural interest in furniture design and woodworking. He decided to pursue residential real estate for most of the last 10 years, while also starting an organic farm outside Austin as a new family business. Chris's story is one showing the many possibilities offered when you implement design thinking to solve problems. All right, friends, 10 Colleagues, 10 Years is a podcast series where I interview 10 of my colleagues from architecture school 10 years after graduating. We all went to Texas A&M University and received a degree from the College of Architecture, but ended up in drastically different places. This podcast is a celebration of what a non-traditional architecture degree offers for the skills that it teaches. It's 10 individual stories of navigating a career path that's meant to be inspirational. And when I personally started my own architecture practice earlier this year, I attribute some of my success to this kind of degree program. So I hope that you get the same sort of inspiration from these stories, and thanks for listening. I'm Heather Pogue, and this is 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. Hi. Hey. How's it going? I wanted to start off each episode telling a story about you. From what I remember in school, we didn't have a lot of studios together. So similar to Aaron, I think we took some electives together, but our sequence of studios and professors didn't line up. So our relationship kind of developed after school when we both moved back to Austin. My earliest memory of you was actually walking by one of your studios. It was Rodney Hill, and it was the challenge to make something furniture related I don't remember the exact prompt but I walked by and you happened to be presenting your chair that you had made the office chair and it was you know people were making crappy things out of cardboard and you brought in this amazing high quality high craftsmanship office chair and I was just like who is this guy with this amazing talent that level of meticulousness in your chair I've seen in all your work and Mm -hmm. how you approach things in life you have an attention for detail that I think is really important that's funny you mentioned I hadn't thought about that chair in a while it's actually in my garage at the moment one of the casters broke off and I just haven't fixed it oh it's being neglected it is. It totally is. I need to bring that out, revive it, because it is beautiful. Because that was from, that was my freshman year in Rodney Hill Studio. That was the studio that changed my life. How so? Well, so we didn't really hang out all that much. Early on, we didn't have studios together. So when I was like graduating high school, and like, what do I want to do? I knew I, at the time I was building houses with my family. I just had an interest in home design it was very scratch surface level very shallow and I didn't really know what to do I just knew I loved home design and my path at that point was probably going to be taking over my family's company which was the woodworking and cabinetry and furniture and there's not a degree for that A&M offered the environmental design degree which is architecture centered and driven but also allows you to tailor it in a way that You could go urban planning, or you could go into visualization if you wanted to later, landscape architecture, industrial design. 
so I kind of picked it from that aspect, but I'm not super intentional. It was almost like a, just a happy accident. And then going into my first studio was John Ferry's studio, which was so abstract. That's going to be my question. Let me stop you there. So that was going to be my first question. I wanted you to talk about why Rodney Hill's studio is life-changing, but we can go back to that. What was your fairy word? Fairy word. What I mean by this is fairy's actually a person. He's John Ferry, and he was the studio professor you had directly before or after Rodney Hill, typically. His assignments were notorious because the first day he made all the students select a word that described themselves. And then everything we designed in that studio had to express that particular word. First was a 2D drawing of delicate small ink strokes. Then came the 3D cube of shapes. And then, lastly, a house. All had to ultimately express the word. And our colleagues became known for that word. So I thought it would be fun to revisit this topic 10 years later. What was your fairy word? Ordered. Probably not the word that I should have chosen. He and I had very different interpretations of what exactly that word meant i don't know how do you make an you remember the cubes we did right with the the 3d shapes all inside that Mm -hmm. couldn't extend beyond making that out of triangles in an ordered fashion but that wasn't what he wanted as order either because it still had to be completely random and i felt like i was just chasing after a ghost the entire semester And I remember the assignment differently. Andrew remembers it, I think, accurately. I thought we went in with one word that we just said, this is it. And he was like, no, it was a democratic process. You had three words and the class got to vote on your word, which I thought was really strange. Especially in the first week. (laughs) When you don't know anybody. Yeah. So would you say Um, you're still ordered? It was a, a really, really frustrating, like I didn't really understand the point of what was happening in there. And I feel a little ashamed about this, but to this day, I didn't really, I still don't understand the point of what happened in that studio. But then I followed up with Rodney's studio. Okay. So you had Fairy first. Yeah. And I then had Rodney. First. Okay. I did the opposite. And uh, Rodney was so yeah. nurturing and so accepting and welcoming. And then Fairy was a rude awakening. By rude awakening, I mean that it's really the first studio where most of us encountered creative criticism. It wasn't that John Ferry was mean, it's just that he gave us a taste of the world of architecture. You create something and that can be quite personal, but you have to separate yourself from your work in order to be critiqued effectively and not take it personally. This is very hard to do as a creator, but necessary if you want to survive architecture and your eventual career in architecture. That's interesting that you got the reverse. Maybe it made you stay in architecture. (laughs) having Rodney next. Well, you're the one who's still in architecture, so <laughs> help me get out. Stayed through the degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but Rodney, he just let you be you. He was very strategic about like how he fostered your creativity as the individual that you are, not just trying to fit you within the black trousers and button-up shirt and black horn-rimmed glasses he just let you express yourself. He also had very high degree of skill and interest in woodworking. He was a wood craftsman, a totally different level than I was. I was more like use technology and furniture and in the construction of furniture and, and making it very modular and everything. Actually, I'm sitting at my desk right now that I made with Rodney Hill for my senior independent study. Yeah, he just, he didn't fit you in a box. Did you see those carvings that he ever did in the MSC? And I actually didn't know this till after school that he did that and that his wife 
did them. They mm-hmm. did it together. Mm-hmm. You look at it and you're like, how is that even possible? I mean, it almost looks like somebody used like a 3D printer and printed it out. In our generation now, it'd be unheard of to carve something like that. But anyway, so he and I could kind of nerd out over woodworking and he just let you be yourself. There were some architecture aspects in that studio, but honestly, the part I enjoyed the most was building the architectural models and the topography. And I would go cut out MDF sheets out of a CNC and do the topography and then super meticulous on how all the miters on my architectural models were. And so like, I think I probably did some pretty crap stuff in there, but (laughs) It looked good because my model looked really good. Yeah. Well, I guess then I would say you're still pretty ordered. Would you say that? Yeah. Or would you say if you had to choose a different word, what would it be now looking back? I don't know. Maybe you kind of hit the nail on the head in your introduction about your memory of me, but I've always kind of thought of myself as like a very detail oriented and meticulous person. So I probably would have gone something in that route, but I think ordered just boxed me in too much. I might even have picked ordered nowadays if I just had someone on the other side with a different understanding or me being able to articulate what it meant and actually standing up for that. Yeah. For me, I relate to you, what you're saying in a lot of ways through reflecting and thinking about this interview process for myself. It took me, I think I didn't really understand architecture till I graduated. And it, it took me a long time to really feel like it all clicked. For people, it was just different. And I was one of those people that was like questioning throughout the four years, should I even be an architect? Mm-hmm. I think I can relate to that a lot. I never intended to, like through my adventures, my time at A&M for the environmental design program, I never intended on graduating and ever practicing architecture. I don't know. It was a unique perspective. I feel like I was a little relaxed going through that process Mm -hmm. because I wasn't going through, you know, we had to focus a lot on our portfolios, getting those in tip top shape. In the back of my mind, the only person I have to impress is my family because I'm taking over this company. And Mm -hmm. that was naive of me. Yeah. I just didn't have the sense of urgency that I think everyone else did with those projects. Backing up, I would like to talk a little bit more about how you got into the architecture school. I've always enjoyed architecture and just home design, construction, and then the interior finish out of homes. It's always been something I've loved. When I was a really young age, I would go into homes or restaurants or hotels or whatever, and I would notice the small, small details. And I love noticing how miters lined up and what trim they used and I just like details. We were building homes at the time as kind of a side business. I've always been involved in home construction. My parents, we remodeled our first two houses actually on the street I live on now. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's like six houses down off the side of the street. You know, once we did those, we built our house in Dripping Springs. And I've just always been involved in home construction. When I was considering like what I could do, my two high concept options were one was to be a neurosurgeon. And <laughs> I did not know that. Right? <laughs> Nobody would want me doing that. <laughs> I quickly found out I can't do human blood. And my next option was architect. It did correlate to Nagelhout and Company, the woodworking company, just because you are working so closely with architects through that process because it's not just, oh, you're ordering cabinet A, C, and M in X sizes. It's custom design stuff, and some of it's run-of-the-mill 
plastic laminate cabinetry and some of its very high-end architectural woodwork that involves a lot of moving components and metal and stone and acrylics and wood as well. You really have to have an attention to detail and an understanding of those products as well as an understanding for an architect's design intent. Whether I knew that, choosing architecture or not, I think that was definitely a factor into it in my thinking, but I was like 17 at the time. I can't imagine that I was all that insightful. That's how I ended up picking architecture. When you were in school, it sounded like Rodney Hill was pivotal for you in helping you through the program. Was there anything else during school that was pivotal or inspiring, whether it be professors or other students or what got you through school and what helped you start your journey? Yeah, that's a great question. In terms of mentors, probably just be Rodney Hill. He was a very approachable person too. You know, he always, he didn't take himself too seriously. He always wore goofy ties. I think one time he wore a python (laughs) skin pie to class and he was a character that studio with him, I did an independent study with him, and then I was a t- teacher assistant TA in one of his courses later on. So as far as like professors within the program, definitely my most memorable professor. The other, the other aspect of architecture was just like the core group you make in that program. Nothing breeds friendship or stronger friendship than forced proximity to people, right? <laughs> Couldn't like agree more. Not. That's why we're doing this podcast. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You end up becoming friends with people who you just, you look at on paper and you're like, nope, polar opposite, we don't match. But then you love them for who they are and their quirks. And also through that process of being forced to be around them and befriending them or them befriending you, I think you confront your flaws, your weaknesses in life and your fears, and you learn to think a little differently, see other viewpoints, be more tolerant. True. I think the studio is really the core of the program and it's a really unique environment for all the reasons you just listed. It's your family. I didn't really have a lot of super close friends going. I've never spent that much time around people, very much an introvert, but that forced amount of time that you have to spend around people getting, I mean, you can choose to do your works in seclusion because there were people in our studios who We never saw them until presentation day. Occasionally, there were strokes of genius in their work, but the collaboration between colleagues and then there are certain people within our degree track that were on our same level, like in terms of like where we were at, like progressing through the program, who were, you know, what you would call rock stars and superstars. Being around them and being able to just get the little gifts of genius that they had, you had to be there. You had to kind of put the time in and... You know, you couldn't do that in private. Yeah. Uh, so there was like a core group of people that I became close with. And then we almost followed studios semester after semester, year after year. That was a good segue into you knew you weren't going to do architecture going into the program. So now I want to talk about what you've done since, because I want the audience to know what your path has been since graduating. So you mentioned taking over your family's company. I graduated in that same day. I packed up a U-Haul and started work the next day. Suppose I didn't have a day off. Started work at Nagelhaun Company. And it wasn't strange to me. I started as the project manager there and estimator. 
but I'd kind of grown up in that company. That's where I worked, Christmas break, spring break, summer break. I loved the work. I loved the product that was produced and the interaction and the collaboration and the problem solving that had to be done. But when I got into it, I didn't quite love the contractor, subcontractor relationship, especially because a lot of our jobs were big commercial jobs. So it was, it was fast paced. And then the year when we graduated was also when the recession happened. Everything was cutthroat. Those were some downsizing years at the company, capacity being lessened because you couldn't afford to keep as many people on the job to do the necessary work to get the job done. It was just draining. But while I was there, we implemented a CNC, increased our production like 200%, which is, I think, probably one of the only things that helped keep Nagel Houghton Company on a trajectory of being afloat during those years. And then now they're doing very, very well. When did it you? Was a existential crisis because it was also the family company and I was like this is what I'm going to do and then I had to like basically declare to my family no this is not what I want to do I need to do something else but I don't know what it is I just know I need to get out of here because I don't like who I'm becoming so you knew you need to get out because you knew it wasn't a good fit so then how did you start thinking about the next journey and what led you to real estate it was all an accident so I bought my house just a little less than a year after graduating And I remodeled the whole thing, tore out sheetrock and plumbing and electrical and redid it all. And it was a creative outlet for me and a project. At that time, I knew I wanted to get out of Nagel Houghton Company, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was kind of grasping for anything. And one thing that I grasped onto was, oh, I'll sell this house. I'll become a home flipper. And that's what I'll do. And then through the process of getting a real estate license in order to do that, I realized that was a little bit of a high concept idea and probably not all that practical. Kind of, I don't know, fell into real estate, I suppose. And I ended up interviewing with a brokerage that everybody who works there is only by referral. So there's no advertising. We're not doing like open houses and all that sort of stuff. And it was full of individuals who were, you know, had in their past life had been run really large foundations or MBAs, lawyers, etc. And they did very well. The industry and the career path that they were in didn't fulfill them. And a lot of the people there are more relationship driven. So I ended up just falling into that interview process and loved the company and started there. And I've done that for eight or nine years now. And it's been one of those careers where architecture completely helps me. That's what I want to get into next. How does the skills you've learned from the degree play into your real estate? At the company I landed... I can't claim these ideas as my own, a lot of these distinctions and stuff, because I really did learn them and borrow them from my broker and my colleagues. In hindsight, it's very much like when you're helping a client purchase or sell a home, you're not just helping them purchase or sell a home. You're their realtor for life, the godparent of their home. That was kind of like our mantra there. You're more of an advisor. You're helping them through this very complicated, cumbersome process, but you're also helping them make the best decision for them at that time and going forward. And so I'd work with investors and I'd work with home buyers and you have to understand a home in order to be able to help somebody buy a home. I never say that I sell somebody a home because it just, that's not what happened. I don't need my clients to buy any home. Being able to understand the function of a home and going into a home and seeing where flaws could exist. If somebody loves to cook, let's say, this is a really simple example, but if somebody loves to cook and entertain, with a little bit of noticings 
for the type of home that they like and how a home is laid out and understanding what's underneath that sheetrock. How can you change a home to become exactly what you want it to be? You can have something absolutely fantastic. Instead of having to go buy the brand new house way on the edge of town, lo and behold, you need to sell it five or seven years later and there's not much equity built into it. I like everything that you just said. Because you were trained to look at spaces and you have this eye for detail, you can walk into a home with a client and really see the vision with them. Our realtor here actually ended up being a lot like this because we wanted to remodel. So he looked at it like we would look at a home. Can I open this wall and put plumbing here? Where's the sewer line running? A great way to explain it is architecture helped me understand how a space functions for somebody from their own point of view, not my point of view or something written down on paper or you know a preconceived notion or idea. It helps you understand that a space is very, very personal and it's not the same thing to two different people ever. Being in real estate and having architecture background, also having the background of construction and that I've built homes from the ground up and remodeled them was really a great set of skills and narratives and distinctions that helped me to help them find the right home that suited all their needs at that time, plus was hopefully going to be a really great investment for them later on. And then when it comes to remodels and add-ons and just any home projects, I think having the architecture background really helped me understand aesthetics and proportions and design in general so that it could be personal and be not something cookie cutter but something that also had like practical value later on for them. A lot of what you're talking about is listening and absorbing information. I learned a little bit in school, but when you go into it, you think, oh, an architect just goes into a place, designs something creative, and then poof, here it is. The world accepts it. Is with a naive mind, what you think's happening, but really what you find out is it's a ton of listening and a ton of paying attention. Yeah. Observing. That's um, actually, I, I'm glad you brought that up because the idea of an architect that at least I had, I don't know if you had the same thing, but I would assume a lot of our colleagues did going into architecture school is what you see on TV. It's a, it's a make-believe character that's drawn up to fit well onto a, a TV, a movie script or a sitcom or something. And, you have this idea that it's this person who takes themselves way too seriously and they know all the answers ahead of time and they're this really bold presence and a lot of good architects are bold presence because they're being themselves. They're not trying to conform and be someone else because of a lot of their value is in them and in their individual design. But it's also part they left out that we didn't really understand that I think we probably did learn through the environmental design program was that listening, learning that, okay, that's not it. I don't have to conform to that. Let me be me, but let me, let me learn how this space affects these people or this individual or this business and design it for that. I don't have to have all the answers. I just have to know how to listen and determine it and problem solve to get to the best scenario for that individual. Yeah. So with real estate, do you feel like you found that calling? Do you feel fulfilled? I love what I do. I do well at it, but I am moving in a different direction at the moment. I want to hear more about that. With real estate, I love what I do. I really, really enjoy it, especially working with people all the time who know, like, and trust me to some degree. 
I form really close relationships with them, and that's the fun part. But for some of my ambitions and where I hopefully leave the world in a better place than you know, where it's at, when I'm gone, I am now starting an organic farm. We're starting out using aquaponics, so we're raising fish. We're doing it all organically. We're raising lettuces and microgreens and leafy greens. We've just built our first greenhouse. We're not growing anything yet, but we're about three weeks away from putting the fish in our system and getting the water flowing. But it's a 16,000 square foot greenhouse, all indoor, climate controlled inside, not a traditional HVAC unit, but evaporative cooling and fans and shade cloths and stuff. So it's completely automated. Our goal is to bring organic produce and microgreens and healthy produce in general and food to Texans, hopefully also a, a more accessible price. Right now, organics and everything with that is, um, uh, it has like an, a little bit of an, an elitist. It's a premium. Yeah, it commands a premium and not everybody can afford that. So our goal is to utilize and leverage technology and automation and computers and be able to take this process of growing lettuce and make it really streamlined and be able to use those efficiencies to affect the price of organic food, you know, at the grocery store, but also provide them a higher quality product too, by leveraging LED lighting technology and some things I don't want to say, uh, yeah. just because of what we do. But yeah. yeah, just bringing a much better product through the use of technology to the end consumer. You've talked about this for eight years, doing yes. this with your dad. I remember you thinking that that was going to be a transition that you're going to make. And by hearing you talk about it, I never realized, and now I do realize how systematic it is and how it truly is architecture, what you're doing. You're thinking of a giant system and you're figuring out a way to organize it and put it into a process that, and develop a product with it. Your systematic thinking is basically, that's what we're trained to think like. Yeah. I was trying to think of segues or correlations between architecture and that's the best one. But yeah, I mean, we are designing the space and designing the greenhouses, you know, also looking at like the long-term efficiency of it and where future breakdowns lie as we expand to, I'll admit it's much less sexy than beautiful architecture, probably what you do like day in and day <laughs> out. But yeah, it, if I had to go back and if you asked me like, well, what would I do now? If I redid college, if I redid my degree, would you do anything different? I don't think I would. The journey is also part of it too, the journey afterwards, if I would think differently or not, or what I'd be doing if I, if I hadn't have gone down that architecture degree path been influenced by the professors there, the projects, and also just the incredibly unique people you meet going through that process as well. You say it's not sexy as great architecture, but it's got a social mission to it. One target audience for me is people that are struggling with, okay, what do I do with myself in any sort of career or transition period to find people that are inspiring that are continuing to go through the journey and you're right it's it's like you enjoy the journey when we were younger especially me like i always thought it would be getting to the destination of whatever that was but the thing that you don't account for is you're not the same person that day as you are the next day with all different learnings and concerns that you have or don't have anymore i look at people sometimes like well you you came out of the architecture program they're practicing architecture, and it seems like they're just rock stars, and they knew it from day one. But when you really talk to them, it seems like that wasn't really the case. Like, there's still a journey to get there, and they're still in their journey. But that's the fun part. Never stop. For me, farming is, it seems weird calling it farming. 
I feel like that gives me the idea or <laughs> gives this notion to people that I'm going to be out there in like a straw hat and a corn cob pipe. And... A lot of what you're doing, I think people now, our generation, thinks of farming the way you're describing it. I hope so. The younger generations absolutely will. Urban farming is now not a buzzword because it's been around so long. I can't not think about the farm. Like, I can't sleep at night. I can't concentrate on anything because all I do is think about the farm. And just like my brain's just like going nuts thinking about like all the different things we could do. And with aquaponics, it's like an open door of there's no standard out there. So figure it out on your own, do it, and then make it something better. Is that overwhelming or do you like tackling? I love it. I love having problems to solve. I need problems to solve. That's the thing about real estate. Like I got to a point where it's just easy. I knew how to get my clients in the best position possible. I knew how to get them to win multiple offers. And I pretty much knew what they were going to buy before they knew what they were going to buy. And it just became really simple. There wasn't really much advancement. I wasn't interested in opening up my own firm or anything like that. But it was great. I love it. But it just got kind of boring. Yeah. Now I've got this, which it will always be a project. I'd love to show you the farm. Maybe none of it will work. I don't know. We planted an experimental apple cider orchard. We're testing 11 different varieties right now, 10 trees each. So we have 110 back there that we're testing just to see if they will grow in our climate. Because some apples will, but a lot of apples won't. Where is your farm? Bastrop. Beautiful out there with this amazing pine grove. And right now, all the wild blackberries. So the, um, what do they always call them? Oh, dewberries? Dewberries. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Texas dewberries. I grew up with that not knowing that was, I thought everybody knew what dewberries were. We have them everywhere. And they're all (laughs) perfectly ripe right now. So you just go around and just like pick up dewberries off the ground. And then we have like our Mustang grapevines and this. Sounds lovely. It's 16,000 square feet greenhouse. But probably by the end of this year, early next year, we're going to do our phase two expansion, um, which will double what we have. And then after that, we're hoping to build about four more at a time. Four more? We want to fill out this whole property. So four more won't fill out the whole property, but we want to make our our expansions like bigger than, you know, just one extra greenhouse. We want to do like hopefully four more greenhouses. So at that point, you know, our phase three expansion would have like six greenhouses on the property total. But, uh, but yeah, when you're, if you're, if you're down and you have time, um, we'd love to show you and we'll be growing stuff by then we'll be growing microgreens and then we'll have some lettuce in the system. We'll have fish in the system by then. It'll all be mostly empty because our aquaponic system is going to do it organically. It takes a really long time for you to like cycle in small amounts of fish let the natural beneficial bacteria colonize to convert their waste to beneficial nitrate. It's like this very systematic, slow process in order to like help everything achieve this balance in the system to where you can be growing everything fully. Sounds fantastic. We'll see. Now, I won't stop with farming. I know there's other things we're going to do. I don't know how architecture will relate to those, but it's part of me, so it can't not come with me. We'll see where it goes. What do the next 10 years hold for you? Hopefully a lot. (laughs) Hopefully I'm lucky enough to to make it through another 10 years. I hope that Crisp Farms is what it's called. That's our name. We have 15 acres right now. And I hope that in 10 years that's built out. You know, I don't know where, what other vegetables we'd be growing, but I hope to be a force of change within the agricultural industry. 
I love talking about lettuce. I know most people don't. <laughs> but um, the truth is that like 95% of the lettuce that you consume in the United States and Canada comes from either the Yuma Valley in Arizona from like November to March. And the rest of the year, it's all Salinas Valley, California, which are incredibly arid. I don't know with architecture. I hope to still be at the farm. We're just starting, so I, I really hope to still be at the farm. And that we're much larger and we're tackling bigger infrastructure problems and technology problems. And I'm sure that architecture and the way that you were taught to think about components and systems and structures of the human environment, I hope that that's something that provides some usefulness for me when we're designing this environment that we're working in to be growing healthy produce for people. I think that's all I know how to answer. Do you think you'll still be doing real estate? No, I love it, but it, that's been like a very hard thing for me because I don't see the potential in there. I can only help so many people buy a home. Like I only have so much capacity. I can only help so many people per year just because like mechanically and pragmatically, like I only have so much time. But with the farm and the, the simpleness of the food that we're growing there and how widely used it is, I potentially have the ability to, in, in my team, my company, to affect millions of people and maybe even the world just with technology that we could help develop or you know, advance along. So yeah, I think that's part of my switch into it. Real estate is one of those things that I can't practice it in the capacity that I would practice it to make myself happy and my clients happy if I had my foot in something else too. I'm either all in or I'm all out. I had to confront that with the farm because I had thought like, oh, maybe I'll just stay in real estate and you know I'll be an outside advisor to the farm. And that just didn't work out. I'm too involved and I'm passionate about it and I love it so much. Is this an endeavor with your family also? Yeah, this is an endeavor with my dad and I. This is that thing we've been talking about for like eight years. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's he and I who are uh, who started it. And then Grant, he's our farm manager, essentially. So he's there full time now. It really is a family thing. It's family like me and my dad and then me and my husband. Sounds great. <laughs> well, and that's why I wanted to do this podcast now, because 10 years of experience is a good amount and you kind of get your bearings in it. You can get deep enough in a field, I think, to understand it and to start to get astride. But then I think it's also a good point of reevaluating if you aren't fully satisfied or if you are wanting something more or if you find something else fascinating. This is kind of a time I've noticed people wanting to transition. You get enough into something and you're like, okay, I could keep doing this thing for another decade, but does that really make me happy? And then if not, what is that thing? It's not uncommon, I guess, for what you're transitioning to this other field. I started mm -hmm. my own firm. Everybody's just at that point where we have the skills and the resources to now do something more. It gets us closer to whatever that thing is. It totally is. I hadn't really thought about like the, the timing is appropriate yeah I think a lot of people are reevaluating I think that's normal yeah that's like healthy and let me let me ask you one final question okay. the pinnacle of architecture school is the all-nighter how many do you think you pulled I was angry my first all-nighter <laughs> that I ever pulled and it was on my study abroad in Italy 
and I couldn't have been more pissed. Getting through that first one, it was a, a snowball effect from there, and it just became easier and easier. But I suppose I probably pulled. Gosh, I wish I would have kept an inventory of that. Just a 30 guess. To 30 to 40. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. yeah, I think it's probably on the lower end of that. But I'd say it's definitely more than 20. It got to a point where it was kind of fun. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody else was there with you. And we'd bring in like coffee makers and everything. And you would just be drinking coffee. Then you'd go make the midnight Taco Cabana run. Or 2 a.m. run. And you'd be in line with all the people getting out from the bars. Yeah, <laughs> It was an event. Yeah. Well, because the people you know that you want to hang out with, they're all there. Yeah, what am I going to do, go home and be by myself? Yeah, we weren't typical college students where everybody was at the bar. We were in studio working, but being silly and ridiculous. Our alcohol was lack of sleep. That would be equated to being drunk because... I think they do. I think they say it's something like the equivalent of being drunk or like so many beers. (laughs) Yeah, it's like not healthy. Nope, not at all. For your friendships and long-lasting friendships and and memories, it's healthy. Solidifying friendships. It's important. Sure. You started your own firm. I have, yeah. And how is that going? When did this happen? It's going to be a long story short. So I've been in a lot of places and I've basically done every type of architecture you could do. Design, Mm -hmm. build. I've been out there building in the field. I worked on parks, like landscape architecture. I looked at what was out there and I was thinking, there's nothing exciting to me about going to another firm. Mm Mm-hmm. I knew I needed to do it. And then the idea that having flexibility to explore, just like you, you were, you were wanting to try something else. And I wanted that flexibility to do yeah. this podcast, to write more. You know, I, got, I was starting to get published in magazines. I did a couple of articles and I really loved it. So just stuff like that, I find I, I would get bored. I'm not a traditional architect. Ideally, where I see myself as like doing architecture, but doing like all of these side projects. So I'm starting with the podcast. This is my first side project. It's more exciting, I think, to try and do different things. I don't want any day to look the same. Yeah. I think that sounds fantastic. Cool. Well, thanks for your time. Absolutely. I'll talk to you later. Let us know when you're in Austin. We'll show you the farm. And I want to talk y'all's ears off here. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about. All right. Bye, Chris. Have a good rest of your evening. Yeah, you too. Chris's journey shows a wide variety of applications for the skills that an environmental design degree can provide. He went from one successful family business in millworking to the next, a commercial scale organic farm, and had a good go of residential real estate in between. His family's aquaponics farm is outside Austin, Texas, and they've just been certified officially as organic the date this podcast was published. There are exciting things on the horizon for Chris as he navigates a career in commercial farming, and we wish him the best of luck. Stay tuned for next week's episode, which features an architect who just started her own residential practice and talks about the challenges associated with starting that kind of business. See you next time on 10 Colleagues, 10 Years.